We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. I hope everybody's doing great tonight. You look great. Uh, the weather has cooled off extremely uh, since I saw you last. Um, we are now in what I call beanie season. Um, if you are uh, if you are bald, you come to realize that you don't go. I don't go anywhere without these. I have one in every jacket. And the other day, um, it's so exciting. Um, I was getting a couple of my jackets out, like hunting jackets, making sure I had everything ready. And I found three beanies in three different hunting jackets. It's kind of like when you reach inside a pair of pants and find a pocket knife that you thought you had lost. I mean, it's almost like Christmas again. So it's a it's a getting cold. I, I love this time of year. I'm glad that you braved the cold weather uh, to be here tonight and to celebrate with us because we are going to talk about my favorite word in the entire English language. In fact, I think it's the most beautiful word theologically that anyone's ever come across. I think that when you even get a minute understanding of this word, that it changes everything. It changes the way that we worship. It changes uh, the way that we evangelize, it changes the way that we understand ourselves, it changes the way we understand God. It is the bedrock. In fact, this one word is the difference in the religion that we profess and every other world religion. And so tonight as we get started, if whatever someone's idea of deity is, because when we ask people, do you believe in God? Still, even with as many atheists as there are, the overwhelming majority of people will still answer yes to that question. Do you believe in God? But if we ask them the follow-up question, who is God or who is God? And often we hear this phrase that's tacked on to the end of it, who is God to you? Then we start to see what people really do believe or what they believe about God. Now, whatever someone's answer is, that's not what we're talking about tonight. But whatever their answer is to who they believe God is, the next question that someone would have that would be a logical question would be, do you believe that you have a relationship with God? And even furthermore, how would you have a relationship with God? Or how could you be right with God? Or could I, how could you get in good with God? Now, I don't know how many people, if, if you've ever, that are in here, maybe you have had a comparative religion class, or you've read a book, or you've taken a course on world religion, but in any world religion, um, and you pick one, can you think of some of the answers that are most prevalent in any world religion? If you're to ask that question, how can you be right with God? Whatever it is that your idea of God is, how do you think it is that you can be right with him? What do you think the, the common denominator is in most people's answer to that question? How they can be right with God? Or how can you and God be good? What do you think the most common answer to that question would be? Works. So how, how do we boil that down to understand what works looks like? Now, whether we're talking about, remember that these five solas that we're talking about, we talked about sola scriptura for two weeks tonight. We're talking about sola gratia or grace alone. And when we talk about grace alone, what we're talking about is the difference in a grace-based faith 
and a works-based religion. A grace-based faith or a works-based religion. Now, when I say a works-based religion, all of these solas came out of what we've talked about over recent weeks, the Protestant Reformation that started when Martin Luther came across Romans 1.17, that the righteous will live by faith. He began to study Scripture. He began to see problems inside the Catholic Church. He, po he posted the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg, Germany, and he did so not because he was trying to split the church, but because he wanted to have some honest doctrinal theological discussions, and he wanted to see some reforms or changes, not for there to be other denominations. He was hoping that the church that he currently served would see the light and that they would reform theologically from what they believe. What we know, though, is the conversation did not go that way. He ended up being kicked out or excommunicated, and he, along with so many others that we've talked about over recent weeks, people like Zwingli and Calvin, were part of this Protestant Reformation. And being based on Scripture alone and then flowing from that grace alone went straight in the face primarily of the Catholic Church at the time. So we're going to talk about that, but then also talk about some ways that it differentiates from other, all other world religions. Because whether it's Roman Catholicism, whether it would be Hinduism, whether it would be some forms of New Age, some forms of Buddhism, certainly, certainly Islam, Every other world religion, including Roman Catholicism, is based on a works-based faith. In other words, there are things you must do to earn favor with God. So in the Roman Catholic Church, some of the things that you had to do to earn favor with God was you would give alms or you gave your offering or you had to purchase things called indulgences, which were papal slips that were given where you could... Actually, they were telling people that you could buy people's way out of purgatory. Um, the Roman Catholic Church thought that the, that the afterlife consisted of three places. The Bible teaches that it only consists of two places, heaven or hell. But they taught the doctrine of something called purgatory. By the way, this has never been, the, the doctrine of purgatory has never been reversed by the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a place that people went to continue to pay for their sins. And it was a way that the church could raise money because I could tell you that your grandmother is in purgatory and the only way that she could get out of purgatory was for you to purchase a papal indulgence or to buy her way out of purgatory. So it was seen that the way in good with God was either to buy or to purchase or to, whether that be through saying prayers, through memorization, through going through a priest, through works that you would be able to earn salvation or to earn grace. Now that's actually an oxymoron when you put those two, earning grace, that's, that it's completely it completely counterintuitive to what the actual word means. But if we compare not only Roman Catholicism, but you play, play every other world religion, I, I put a note in here that right now there is someone in the world who is offering their child as a sacrifice to a god. They are killing a baby at this very moment to try to please a supposed deity so that they could be in right with God. There are people at this very moment who are cutting themselves. There are places 
still in South America, and you will see this throughout the world where you will see ritual cutting ceremonies. There's even people who believe that they can earn the grace of God by cutting themselves in the same way that Jesus bled on the cross. So you will see them cut places in their feet, cut places on their hand, cut their sides because they are trying to earn favor with God by suffering the same way that Jesus suffered. There are people that are right now that are laying on a bed of nails because they're trying to somehow escape reality and by laying on this bed of nails find themselves in a new plane of existence where they are more connected with God. We hear people all the time that are inflicting pain on themselves and by inflicting pain on themselves, they believe that they're earning favor with God. There are people right now who are bowing and praying prayers over and over and over again towards Mecca because they believe that by doing that, they are earning favor with their idea of God. There are people in this very moment who are placing chicken carcasses before an altar because they have killed a chicken and they're asking God's favor or God's forgiveness by having killed this chicken. There's people right now that are holding a rosary, that are going through the rosary beads and are calling out Hail Marys and asking God to, to, to go through as they walk through those. Or there are people right now that are in front of a priest asking, what can I do? Give me an assignment so that I can be right with God. And throughout the Protestant Reformation, what arose was the teaching of the New Testament. And if there is a word that jumps off the page of the New Testament that differentiates biblical Christianity and the gospel from everything else that you will hear anywhere around the world. It is the doctrine of grace. Grace alone is how we are saved. Grace alone. Now, there are even denominations today that are would consider themselves part of the Protestant movement, but they teach what I call quasi-grace. Now, that may seem like a $5 term, but they teach that you need grace, but you need grace and something else. So if you teach that you need grace and something else, you're saying that I need the sacrifice of Christ on the cross by His shed blood, and you need something else. That's quasi-grace. If I say you have to, A, you have, maybe it is that you have to have the grace of God, but you also have to do something else. You need the grace of God and you need to be baptized. You need the grace of God and you must take communion. You need the grace of God and you must give this amount. You need the grace of God and you must do this. You need the grace of God and you must speak in tongues. You need the grace of God and anything. Jesus plus anything equals cult. Jesus plus anything equals false religion. It is Jesus alone. We're going to talk about Christ alone, but it's Jesus alone because it is grace alone. Grace allows us to be credited with Christ's righteousness and have our guilt removed. The Protestant Reformation started over a dispute about the doctrine of justification. I've highlighted some words in your handout just so they would jump out a little bit. Very important words as we talk about sola gratia, as we talk about grace alone. Grace, obviously, the doctrine of justification. And the doctrine of justification is still the issue that divides the true gospel and the false gospel. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of passages 
uh, tonight and then in two weeks. We won't, have, we won't be here next Wednesday night. Uh, next Thursday is obviously Thanksgiving, but in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll go dig a little bit even deeper into this. But for tonight, Romans chapter 3, um, very familiar verses of Scripture. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. A righteousness from God, apart from the law. So for you to receive grace, for you to be right with God, you have to be you have to be righteous. Made right, you have to be righteous. How does one become righteous with God? Well, people's natural inclination is they want to know how can I earn that? How can I do enough things that I would be, that would be credited to me? And it's really hard to fault people for that because everything else in life works that way. Think about it. Think about it for just a moment. You apply for a job. They tell you, we're going to pay you this amount a year. But we expect you to be here. We expect you to do this. We've got requirements. So your salary is not grace, right? Your salary is earned. That's what you are given for your wa a wage that you are given. Everything else that we do, we understand there is merit-based things that we get for that. Now, so when we start talking about grace, when he says apart from the law, this is where most people misunderstood the Old Testament then, and it's where I think people misunderstand the Old Testament most grossly today, and that is the role of the law. Most people don't understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Most people think that we ought to put the Ten Commandments up in schools because we can teach kids how to be righteous. We ought to put them up everywhere. That way a kid will know everything that they should do and shouldn't do, right? We've missed the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is not to tell somebody how righteous they can be. You read the Ten Commandments. And then step away from that. And if you read the Ten Commandments and say, I really am righteous. I'm doing great. Then you're just like the rich young ruler. Because Jesus gave him a litmus test. And he told him, he said, let me give you a few of the commandments. And he looks at Jesus and said, well, all these I've kept since I was a youth. Jesus didn't push him on that. A lot of people get caught up on that parable because Jesus starts talking about giving all your money to the poor. Jesus just went to where it hurt because the guy had missed the whole purpose of the Ten Commandments and people have been missing the purpose of the Ten Commandments ever since. You read the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are a microcosm of the whole Old Testament law. And the point of the Old Old Testament law isn't to give you a way to be right with God because you're going to be perfect. It's so that you would know how holy and perfect God is so you could know how messed up you are. That's the purpose of the law. And when you read it, you go, not, whew, hmm, boy, I'm doing good. No, you read it and go, oh, no. Oh, no. I have put other gods before me. I have bowed down to things and made them more important than Jesus. I have taken the Lord's name in vain. I haven't always honored the Sabbath. I didn't always honor my mother and father, and I've disrespected them in some ways. No, I hadn't murdered anybody, but Jesus said if I've ever had bad thoughts about somebody in my heart, that it's the same thing. No, maybe I've not committed adultery, but if I've ever had a lustful thought about somebody that wasn't my wife, then I've done that. 
If I've ever stolen anything, taken a pencil or anything, I'm, I'm guilty of that. If I've ever told a lie, I'm guilty of that one. And if I've ever coveted or wanted anything that wasn't my own, I'm guilty of that. The, the Ten Commandments don't justify you. They condemn you. They condemn you. We ought to be a people that preach the law more. But we preach the law because you can't preach grace without people knowing how devilishly hellbound they are because they are in iniquity. They are children of iniquity, children of the devil, haters of God, and the law proves that. So when Romans 3.21 is helping us to see that when we read about the law, the law has an insistence all throughout the Old Testament on blood sacrifice. Um, so it showed that their works, their sacrifices, and their rituals would never be enough. There's, there's, just, there's not enough lambs. There's not enough goats. There's not enough bulls. There's not enough sacrifices. One of the most disgusting yet interesting studies I've ever done is when they built the temple, how they had to actually build, they had to get engineers to come in to the temple in Jerusalem and engineer plumbing canals because when they had the slaughter of animals, there was so much blood that would flow out that if they didn't build the right canals to get it out, the whole temple would have become a cesspool of blood from the sacrifices. And they went over and over and over and over again. A disgusting process. There always had to be another lamb. And there always had to be another goat. There always had to be something else that was going to take the place and symbolize that something must be killed. And all the while, the law, the prophets, all of the sacrifices are pointing the, to Christ as the way the law would be fulfilled. So when we say that, that grace paid it all, when we think about all to Jesus that, that we owe, it's because when we think about him being the lamb of sacrifice, he took on the sins of the world, so he fulfilled the law perfectly, never committed a sin. He now becomes the perfect lamb and his blood is shed. He fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament and it all points to the fact that there is a gift now of righteousness that's apart from the law. So when we say grace is free, when I tell you that there are people that want to tell you that there is grace plus something. You get grace plus works. You can't have grace plus works or it's not grace. If I tell you that I'm going to give you something, and, and, and I mentioned this beanie. If right now, if I just pulled this out and I said, hey, before you go, I, wanna, I just want to give this to you. And I said, hey, Andy, you've just been a great, great friend. So before you leave tonight, I'm going give to you, give you my beanie on the way out. He says, oh, that's, that's nice, Brother Larry. I really appreciate that. And so we walk outside, and I shake his hand, and I hand him the beanie, and I say, where's my 20 bucks? He said, I, I thought you said that you were going to give me that beanie. I said, well, I am, but I want 20 bucks for it. Now, would he be crazy for thinking that he was going to get this as a gift? No. I told him I was going to give it to him, and then I charged him for it. Somebody that teaches grace plus anything, it's not grace. Because if you could buy grace, you couldn't afford it. You couldn't afford it. The reason it has to be free is the only way you'd ever afford it is it's free. You can't afford it. None of us can. 
So Jesus' sinless, righteous life paid the penalty for the unrighteous in the lives of everyone who believes. Let's continue reading. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All apart from Christ, equally sinful. This, this, took me a long, this, this took me a long time in my life, I think, for God to really overwhelm me with this truth. There are certain things that you preach for years, and then one day you wake up and realize, like, God, I think I finally understood it. I've been preaching it for so long, but I, I, think, I, I think you just broke through. And, and this is one of those places in my heart where God's really broken through in my life to show me there are some people in here myself included, who at times in your life have thought that it required varying degrees of grace to save different people. In other words, well, there's, I mean, I'm pretty good. I went to church, never done anything heinous, never been to jail, don't beat my wife, don't use drugs. I mean, I'm not a, awful person. So I need God's grace, but I need a dose. But there are other people out there that you see and you go, but they really, really need the grace of God. You don't understand grace. Because for grace to reach an individual, we are all sinners. And it is not just about forgiving the individual sins that you have committed. It is about forgiving who you are. Not what you've, just what you've done. What you've done is horrendous. But what you are is an offense to God. You are a walking, talking, wicked offense to the holiness and righteousness of God. You are not a pretty good person that needed to be cleaned up a little bit. And I think there's too many church people that view themselves that way. You are wicked and fallen and outside of grace that has to get to the very core of every part, of every cell in our body, then we are lost because we've all sinned and fallen short. We shall, fell short. We couldn't be in his presence. We were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and therefore not allowed into the Holy of Holies, not allowed into the presence of God, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And so one of the reasons that I am such a stickler and you hear it over and over again from, from the pulpit here. I, I, I wanted to live my life and my ministry be known that he was a champion of grace. And when I say a champion of grace, not a champion of cheap grace. There's a lot of champions of cheap grace. And when I say cheap grace, that's the people who believe, oh, I'm saved by grace, I can live like hell. That's cheap grace, and that's a spit in the face to the Lamb of God, and that's somebody who doesn't appreciate real grace because they abuse it. That's not what I'm talking about. But being a champion of real grace. And I feel like that we need people who are going to champion the real grace of God because we have too many people who have bought into the lie that there are self-improvement strategies and self-help things and looking inside yourself and finding peace within yourself and finding strength within yourself. And I had a conversation um, just this week with a, a young man, um, early 20s, 
really struggling with, with some stuff right now, some decisions um, that are before him. And, and so we were trying to walk through some things, and we had been, we had, we'd covered a, a pretty, good, pretty good bit of ground. And he made a comment to me. He said, he said but I just know, he said, I just know that, that I, have, I have the strength to, to do this. I know I have the strength. I can get through it. And that's the first time in the conversation I corrected him. And I said, you're going to fall flat on your face. And you're going to fail miserably because you have, believe, you have believed a lie. And he didn't say anything that he thought was out of the way. He said, what are you talking about, Brother Larry? I said, you just told me that you have the strength to handle this situation, that you think you can navigate it. And I'm telling you, if you go into it this way, you are going to end up failing miserably because unless you approach this situation by believing that you are going to royally mess it up in every way possible were it not for the grace of God and the strength of God and the power of God working through you and and I could see that something you, you could you could almost see it like the light turned on and so when we champion grace we're championing grace for salvation but we're championing grace for every part of our life, that we need it in every arena. And we quit trying to look inside ourselves and hope that somehow one day we're going to find that magic that's deep inside. You can find something that's deep inside, but it's going to be wicked and it's going to be evil. We quit looking out inside ourselves and start looking outside ourselves, and that's where we find grace. Verses 24 through 26. And are justified freely freely by his grace we've talked about the word justified we've talked about free grace through the redemption that came through christ jesus god presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In a few weeks, we're going to be walking through and talking about faith alone. But for tonight, this grace that requires justification, and the justification is an image from a court of law. It solves the problem of man's guilt before a righteous judge. This free gift of grace costs God the death of his only son, so that, delete, so that believers would be declared righteous and recreated into a child of God. It further demands redemption. Redemption conveys the image um, from a slave market of being bought out of slavery, of being redeemed, of being ransomed out of slavery. Redemption is the delivering by means of paying a price to set a prisoner free, and only a sinless Savior could pay this price. So when we say by his grace, we are saying that it is nothing in us. That when we say we are justified or we are redeemed, there are people that ask this question quite often. Why, why would God save me? Why, why? Why would God give me grace? Marvel at it for all eternity marvel at it for all eternity because it is one of the most beautiful and captivating questions that we try to get our mind around it but so many what the the great fallacy of religion is thinking that somehow God sees something good in us and because he sees something good in us God wants us 
Y'all hear some of us in here giving each other a hard time. There's a bunch of us on staff, a lot of people in the church. We play fantasy football, and it's just a, it's just a fun way to, to give each other a hard time and, and kind of changes the way you watch football because you quit rooting for teams and start watching how individuals do on those teams. But every year you have a fantasy football draft, and it's not unlike if you're familiar with any draft at all. It's, it's like that. And you go through, and each person has a time to draft somebody onto their team. And I really think that somehow we've gotten – one of the great errors in theology is this belief that God kind of has a draft. This is how we kind of see election. That God kind of looks down and he says, oh, there's a good one. Smart. Mm. Good looking. Good family. Mm-hmm. That, that fellow's pretty charismatic. Mm. Sure won't have him on heaven's team. I think I'm probably going to draft him. That is not how you were elected. That is not how you were chosen. That is not how you were called. In fact, if you understand grace, it's the complete opposite of that. The wonder of it all is not that he looked at us and saw what, how great we were and picked us. The wonder of it all is even though he knew every part of us, Psalm 139, that he knew me in our inmost being, that he knew you and he still saved you. He knew every facet of you. He knew the dark corners that nobody knows. He knows the, knows the places where your thoughts go, and he knows everything about us. So he didn't look and say, now there is the MVP of Pike County. Let me get them on my team. No, no, no. The Bible says you were poor, pitiful, blind, and naked before God, unholy, unrighteous, and wicked, and he chose you anyway. That's why grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. It's why grace is amazing. It's why we sing about grace and champion grace because we understand just how beautiful it really is because it provided for us what the Bible calls the sacrifice of atonement. Some of your translations you may have seen there in verse 25, you may see the word propitiation depending on the translation that you use. But in that sacrifice of atonement is appeasing God through sacrifice. It solves the problem of offending our God and our creator. Appeasement was by paying in blood. By Jesus paying in his blood, we know that now there is atonement for sin or the shedding of blood provides the remission of sins. Forgiveness doesn't come because God excused our sin, but because the penalty has been transferred. I think that's very important because if we don't get that, we have so many people that say, well, you know, God's grace, why didn't he just ignore sin? Why, why didn't he just forget about it? Because he can't. He's holy. And you can't be holy and just and ignore it. So something had to be done about it. So what's done about it? His son becomes the one who now takes the penalty for that sin and it is transferred. The mercy seat in the temple 
is a place in the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go in once a year just on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice on behalf of his people. He would sprinkle blood on this mercy seat. You know, anybody in here ever been here on a Sunday and we've sung the song, I'm running, I'm running, I'm running to the mercy seat? The reason we run to the mercy seat, that's where the blood has been sprinkled on the altar. It's placed there. And then after the blood is placed there, then it symbolizes the payment for sins, they would take a scapegoat. You ever, you've used that, heard that word? I used that word my whole life and didn't even really understand what it was. But a scapegoat was then released to symbolize the removal of sin. The blood be placed on this goat and it would be taken out or sent out of the whole camp so that it would symbolize that the sin had been removed, that it had been separated from the people. And so we know that Christ is our mercy seat. His blood sacrifice is sufficient to blot out every sin of those who live by faith before Christ. That's Hebrews 11. When we hear about the roll call of faith, that everyone in the Old Testament, they live by faith and all of us now live by faith. But we actually have the advantage because our faith is able to look backwards on what God has already done, not having to look into the future and wonder what God is going to do. People say, oh, I would have loved to have lived in the time. I would have loved to have been there when they crossed the Red Sea. Not me. I'm glad I'm a new covenant believer. I'm glad I've, that God allowed me to be born after the resurrection of Christ. I'm glad that I know the story of the birth and the incarnation and the perfect life of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the coming again of Christ. We live, don't let anybody lie to you, we live in the best age possible. Why? Because we are closer right now than ever before to the culmination of that age. And so I'm thankful for when God allowed us. He's given us the, the entirety of Scripture to be able to understand our salvation in this grace more and more. And so because of God's justice, we know that no sin will ever go unpunished. Yet because of His grace... No sin is beyond forgiveness. Every sin will be paid for by the sinner himself in hell or it will be paid for him because he's placed his faith in Christ. I don't want to pay for my sin. I don't want to pay for it. I know what that would cost. An eternity in hell. And so we come to this beautiful doctrine of grace and this is partly what I don't understand. I had a call the other day. Just let me finish, just let me finish the story before, like, listen to the whole of the story. I got a call from a, a, a guy that I have gotten to know that is the chairman of a pastor search committee at another church. Let me finish the story. Just let me, let me finish the story. They are not, look, I, I'm not talking to, I'm not talking to them as a candidate. Somewhere you're like, oh man, I was hoping, I was hoping I knew where that went. But that's, but that, no. He said, I need to talk to you. I'm, I'm, I've run into some problems. And I said, okay, what's going on? He said, we're really struggling. He said, we found two guys that we were really excited about. Seemed like great guys. They were good communicators. Seemed like they were leading good places. But the more we have listened, we haven't pinpointed had an interview yet, but we are convinced from their preaching that there are two of them that don't believe in the doctrine of hell. 
And he said, what do you think about that? I said, well, then they also don't believe in the God of the Bible. They don't believe in grace. They don't believe in the cross. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. How how do you figure that? Well, to not believe in hell would mean that God the Father would have to be sadistic. Some of you are already following me on this. If there's no hell, why in the world would the Father, out of love for His Son, allow Him to be mutilated and His carcass left on a tree to be taken down and placed in a bothered tomb to be mocked and spit upon and hated by men? If I didn't need to be saved from a devil's hell. We don't preach the doctrine of hell because it's our goal just to scare people all the time. We preach the doctrine of hell because if we don't understand what we deserved, if we don't understand where we were going, if we don't understand how we were going to have to pay for our sin, then how in the world do I appreciate Christ? How do I world do I fall more in love with Jesus? How in the world do I appreciate what was offered for me on the cross? I can't. So the whole counsel of God, the wickedness of man, not the inherent goodness of man, must be preached. The eternal destiny of man, a real place called hell, must be preached. The necessity of a blood sacrifice. Sometimes we run away from the discussion on blood. There is no forgiveness outside the shedding of blood. Hebrews makes that clear. So over and over again, to understand grace, every other doctrine that you understand makes grace all that much sweeter. And so the more I have dug into every doctrine that flows out of the Word of God, the more I find myself bowing my head and just saying it as simply as a child would pray it. Oh God, thank you for your grace. Oh God. We have been overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with a love that is so beautiful and so matchless and so pure that it is an indescribable gift. Thank you, thank you, thank you for grace. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you now because we are thankful that grace alone is what saves us. I'm so glad, so thankful that I'm not responsible for my own salvation. How lost I would be So, Lord Jesus, I thank you that I'll never have to know life without you. Thank God I'll never have to know eternity without you. So, God, may we be people who are champions of grace, lovers of grace, and, God, people that celebrate you and worship as this free gift continually overwhelms us. And, Lord, we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.